in this series called At the Movies. And last week, Dan kicked it off. Our lead pastor, Dan, kicked it off last week with I Can Only Imagine. It was Father's Day, and I Can Only Imagine is a story, true story, about a band that gets started basically from this song called I Can Only Imagine. And the storyline is really simple. This guy grows up, and his dad is pretty estranged from his entire life, and then his dad finds Jesus. And in the process, we kind of looked at that, and we looked at the prodigal son story and kind of paralleled those together. And if you've never seen the movie, and if you've never seen the message that Dan talked about last week, I would love for you to go and watch that online and then also watch the movie, not online because that's illegal. So go ahead and rent the movie and watch that movie. Today we're going to talk about Incredibles 2. We'll come back to that in a second. Next week, okay, teaser for next week. I know next week is Hoop Fest and I know next week is Iron Man. So let me say this. We do offer Thursday night service. So come on Thursday night. If you're going to Hoop Fest, you're going to Iron Man, come Thursday, okay? Come Thursday. Thursday night's message and Sunday's message next week is this movie called Wonder. Now, up until last week, I had never seen the movie Wonder, but I was like, I'm preaching on it. I've never seen it, but I'm preaching on it. So next week, next week, I've already seen it now. Uh, next week, here's the title for the message, just so we're all on the same page, so you're clear, and so it's a little teaser for you for next week. Here it is. Relationship advice from a movie I didn't want to watch, okay? <laughs> You're going to want to come find out about that next week. So that's next week. The following week is Hitch. But today we're talking about Incredibles 2. Now, just by show of hands, I need to know who I'm talking to today. Who has seen Incredibles 2 before? Just by show of hands. Excellent. I knew 930 would come through strong. 8 o'clock was like, I think I may have seen a clip once. Thursday was just like blank stare. So glad you guys are here today. You guys know where we're going in this. So let's kind of walk through Incredibles. We've got, we've got the Parr family. We've got Bob and Helen and Violet and Dash and Jack-Jack. We've got Bob, known as Mr. Incredible. He possesses superhuman strength, and he's basically indestructible. And we've got Helen. Helen is Elastigirl. She possesses the ability to contort her body and stretch her body in various shapes and sizes. You've got Violet, their oldest kid. Violet has the ability to create force fields around her and around other things. She also has the ability to become invisible. Dash possesses superhuman speed, and he just has this knack for wanting to go and get after bad guys. Then there's Jack-Jack, their youngest son, the infant son. If you haven't seen the movie, I won't spoil it for you. All I'll tell you is this. Jack-Jack is awesome, okay? That's all you need to know about Jack-Jack. He is, he is like the story in itself. Now, let's walk through the story real quick. So Incredibles 2 starts where some politicians come in and say, you guys are causing too many problems, you're causing too many problems. You're saving the world, yes, but you're destroying the city. You're destroying the place that we call home. And so we've got to send you back and just be normal people. And so they have to go and figure out how these individuals who've been superheroes their entire life, how their identity is wrapped up in being superheroes, that they now have to go and they have to live as a family. And if you watch the movie, it's incredibly complex as they try to figure out how to live as a family. It can get frustrating as they try to figure out how to live as a family. And that's where we're going to go today as we talk about families. What do we do as families when life gets complex and when life gets frustrating, but life also has some life-giving relationships when it comes to our family relationships? See, I don't know where you're at today, but my hope is that you know that your family is worth fighting for. The truth is, is that great families, they don't happen by accident. Great families come with intentionality. If we want to have a great family, we've got to fight for a great family. 
We've got to fight for our marriages. We've got to fight for our kids. We've got to fight for our parents. In fact, this isn't a new concept. In the Bible, in Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah speaks to Jerusalem as they're under attack. And this is what it says in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. It says this, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight, check that word, fight for your brothers, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your wives, and fight for your homes. I hope you know that your family is worth fighting for. And no matter where you are in the spectrum of your family life, it's not too late. See, here's the truth for today. If you fall asleep or you got to leave, let me give you the truth so that we're all on the same page right up front. It's this. Families get healthier as they fight together for the mission. Families get healthier as they fight together for the mission. You might backtrack and go, well, what's the mission? What's the mission? Those of us in the room that call ourselves followers of Jesus, the mission is very simple. To raise our kids or to live a life that glorifies God. That is our mission. To raise our kids so that they might have a Christ-centered home, to live a life that where we say and what we do and what we act and how we live glorifies God in every aspect of our life. Families get healthier as we fight together for that mission, for that end goal, to glorify God in all that we do and say and live and act. That is the mission. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me say this. I am so glad that you're here today. Because you get to peek behind the curtain a little bit to find out how it is that we live and act and talk, even all the while screwing it up a lot of time. And so my hope is, is that maybe today, that as you listen in, as this kind of perks your interest, and again, I'm so glad you're here. This might perk your interest today to go, you know what? That's how they live and act and talk, and there's something different about them. Maybe I want that. Maybe perhaps you might perk your interest enough to say, you know what? I'm willing to try that on for a week. I'm going to at least try it on to see if my family gets healthier. That if I focus on the way that I live and act and talk and breathe and, and interact with other people, that maybe, just maybe, my family will get healthier. And here's what makes this message so challenging. The thing that makes this message so challenging is that all of our families are so diverse, aren't they? Some of us come from blended families. Some of us come from traditional families. Some people in this room are married. Some people are not. Some are on their second marriage, third marriage. Some are single. Some are single with kids. Some are raising someone else's kids. And while we all have different types of families, we all have one thing in common. You ready for it? We're all dysfunctional. We have that in common. But it doesn't matter your family background. It doesn't matter where you come from. Every single person in here is dysfunctional, including myself. Every single one of us. And you might assume that as you read through the Bible, that the Bible's full of all these families who got it down. The Bible's full of all these families who are absolutely perfect. Let me just give you a quick snapshot of the Old Testament, okay? Just the Old Testament. We won't even get into the New Testament. Here we go. Adam chose Eve over God. Big mistake. The first recorded homicide is between two brothers. Noah, the most righteous man of his generation. Remember him? Noah. He gets drunk and then curses his own son. Abraham. Remember him? Father Abraham had many sons. Remember that guy? Many sons have Father Abraham. He actually plays favorites between his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And they're forever estranged even to this day. Rebecca schemed with her son to deceive her husband Isaac. Jacob placed favorites with his son Joseph and the other 11 sons. Those 11 sons decide, you know what, we don't like Joseph very much, so they try to kill him, but instead just sell him into slavery. Second best thing. David had an affair. David's son started a rebellion. Eli the priest, he actually lost control of all of his boys. And you might say, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? 
I mean, Mary and Joseph raised Jesus, and Jesus turned out perfect, so obviously Mary and Joseph had this whole parenting thing figured out, right? Mary and Joseph must have been really, 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 really good parents. In fact, you would think they'd be perfect parents because they raised a perfect son. Remember when Jesus was 12? (laughs) Some of you that know the Bible, you know what I'm talking about. Let me catch everybody up, okay? When Jesus was 12, Mary and Joseph and Jesus and a group of people go to the temple, And they go all the way to this temple. It's a journey to get there. It's a couple days journey to get there. They go to the temple. They worship God in the temple. And then they leave the temple. And they're walking back. And Mary says to Joseph, have you seen Jesus? Joseph says, I thought he was with you. They lost Jesus for three days. They didn't just lose him for an hour. They lost Jesus for three days. Today, they would have been reported to child services. We may all be imperfect people who come from imperfect families, but here's the best news of us all. We serve a gracious God who will fill in the gaps of our imperfections, who wants to be involved in our relationships, wants to be involved in our marriages, wants to be involved as we raise our kids in godly environments. And he gives us incredible wisdom about our families. And so the question for us today is really simple. How do we fight together as a family? How do we fight together as a family. The first thing we need to do is we need to discover our identity. We need to discover our identity. In the movie Incredibles 2, what happens is is that the Elastigirl has this rich person come alongside and say, hey, you don't destroy the city. And so because you don't destroy the city, I'm still going to use you as a superhero. And Bob, you're going to have to stay at home and you're going to have to watch all of the kids. You're going to have to become a dad, a stay-at-home dad. Meanwhile, Elastigirl is out saving the world. And Bob has a really hard time figuring out how to simply be a dad. In fact, I want you to watch this clip right here. Elastigirl. Bye, sweetie. I'll watch the kids, no problem. That's not the way you're supposed to do it, Dad. They want us to do it. I don't know that way. Why would they change math? Math is math. Math is math. All over Dusseldorf. Dusseldorf are dozing. Her eyelids so heavy, they're drooping. Mm. Close it! I couldn't have done this if you hadn't taken over so well. I've got to succeed so she can succeed. So we can succeed. I get it, Bob. What the? That is freaky. But I can't keep giving him cookies. Oh, he's freaky. Nobody in a daddy. Parenting is a heroic act. So this film is really about a dad figuring out how to be a dad. He's got to figure out his identity. What is his identity? His identity is figuring out and finding out that he's got a purpose. He's got to accept this purpose as a dad. He's got to put the superhero costume away for just a little while so he can focus on what's most important, raising his kids. He's got this superhuman power. He's got the superhuman strength, but he has to use that same power and that strength to discover his ability as a father. See, we need to do the same thing. We need to discover our role. We need to discover the role for our families to grow for their sake. His identity was wrapped up in being Mr. Incredible. You heard him say there, I must succeed so that she must succeed so that we can succeed. It was a means to an end. If I succeed, then she'll succeed. Then I can go back to being Mr. Incredible. Then I don't have to be dad any longer. And what you find is that throughout this movie, he continues to go back to his identity as as superhero, 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 and he forgets about his identity, his calling as a father. 
Don't we do that? So many of us do that. Where we get our identity wrapped up in, in what we think we are. I'm a business person. I'm a computer programmer. I'm a teacher. I work in retail. I'm a doctor. That's not who you are. That's what you do. I have a degree. I'm at the top of my company. I own my own business. That's not who you are. Those are your accomplishments. I'm short. I'm tall. I'm bald. I'm skinny. That's not who you are. That's your appearance. Who are you? I love how the psalmist puts this. In Psalm 139, verse 13, the psalmist says this, you made all the delicate inner parts and you knit me together in my mother's womb. In other words, the psalmist is saying, is God, you shaped me. God, you made me purposefully and intentionally. Notice that God is the driving force behind you being you. That is important. Stop and think about that. God made you. And I think it's really easy for us, a lot of us in this room, to go, yeah, 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 God made me, God made me, I get it. No, think about this for a second. The same God who spoke the world into existence, the same God who said, yep, there's Venus, yep, there's Mars, yep, that's Jupiter, the same God who said, yep, there's mountains, the same God who said, yep, there's an antelope and a cantaloupe, the same God who spoke all of that into existence made you intentionally and purposefully. And when you begin to understand that you are made by God, when you begin to put your identity in that, it begins to change the way that you see the world. It begins to change the way that you look and act and feel and talk to people around you because you are made by God. We need to discover our identity. Our identity is not wrapped up in who, what we do. Our identity is not wrapped up in our accomplishments. Our identity is wrapped up in being a child of God. And once we understand our identity... The second way we fight for our family is this. We devote ourselves to the mission. We devote ourselves to the mission. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it up to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be the remainder of the day. And in Colossians chapter 3, let me just kind of tell you what's happening so that we're all on the same page. In this culture, first century Colossae, what happens is that women and children have no status. Women and children have no voice. Women were often viewed as a commodity. They were viewed as one step ahead of a slave. And children in this day and age were not cherished at all. Here in just a little while, we're going to do what we call child dedication. We're going to actually cherish children today. But in this culture, what took place was that kids wouldn't even have names until they were a few months old. Because kids would die, and so they just wouldn't name kids. Until this kid turns this much, we're not naming them. We're just, we're just not going to name him. We're not going to name her. Because you know what? They're probably just going to die anyway. That was the culture in which this takes place. And so when Jesus says in the Gospels, when Jesus says, hey, bring me the children... Understand how revolutionary that was. Jesus turned everything up on its head. So in Colossians chapter 3, you've got Paul. And Paul is saying, hey, I want to follow after what Jesus said. I want to follow after what Jesus did and how he views women and how he views children. He says, I want you to apply this to your family. So that's the context by which we find this piece of scripture. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Here's what it says. It says, wives... Submit to your husbands as is fitting to those who belong to the Lord. Now, hang on, because I know that there's a group of people in here who are like, that's so old-fashioned, Ryan. You don't know my husband. You don't know my spouse. You don't know any of this. Please stick with me. The ideal situation for which Paul is writing this is very simple. Here's the ideal situation in which Paul is writing this. This is the context, because a lot of times we take this out of context. Paul is saying this. The ideal situation is for a man to say to his wife, hey, we're going to follow after Jesus. And the wife to say, I can get behind that mission. 
I submit to that. I submit to your authority as the leader of this household to raise our kids and to raise our family to a higher standard, to a higher calling, to live our lives after Jesus. That's the context in which Paul is writing this. That the man would say, yes, we're going to follow after Jesus. And the wife to say, I submit to that. But many times what happens is we take this verse out of context and we look at this verse and we walk into the lobby out here today or we get in the car and we say to our wife, hey, you're supposed to submit to me. That guy on the stage, he said, submit to me, so do that. Well, what's the first verse in there? What's the first word of the verse here? What's the first word? It says, wives. It means this verse isn't for you, dudes. Your next verse is for you. Verse 19, here we go. Husbands, husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. We don't understand how revolutionary this was until you find out the context for which Paul is writing this. Women were considered property back then. They didn't even get to choose their husbands. No, it was chosen for them. They would have been treated like livestock. They would have been treated like camels. And Paul says, that may have been the way that it used to be, but it's not anymore. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're to love your wife. And then he takes it another step further in another scripture. He says, I want you to love your wife the same way that Jesus Christ loved the church. You know what Jesus did for the church? He died for the church. So I want you to take the greatest act of love that you know, the greatest act of love, which is when Jesus Christ came and lived and died for your sin and he died for my sin, and I want you to apply that same kind of love to your marriage. Paul's not done yet. Children, verse 20, children always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. And some of you students are saying, you don't know my parents, Paul. Verse 21, fathers... Do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. I find this very fascinating. Very fascinating that Paul doesn't say, hey, parents. He says, fathers. I've heard it said that a wife's words or a mom's words weigh about 25 pounds. Meanwhile, a dad's words weigh about 500 pounds. In so many cases, a mom and a dad can say the exact same thing. And it just hits heavier when it comes from dad, doesn't it? And what's fascinating is that Paul knew this 2,000 years ago. So in summary, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wife, children obey your parents, fathers don't make your kids bitter. And I know what you're thinking, Ryan, this is all ideal and I expect to hear all this in church. Okay, cool, 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 but you don't know my family. You don't know my mom, you don't know my dad, you don't know my wife, you don't know my husband, you don't know my kids, you don't know any of that. But it doesn't just give us the idea without telling us how to get there. In fact, Paul wrote another book he wrote the book of Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, he thought this was so critical that he wrote it twice. Almost word for word, almost verbatim, wrote almost the exact same thing. But he starts with a principle first. And I believe this principle has the ability to change the way that you look and act and talk to your family around you. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, this is what Paul says. Before he sets up the husbands and wives and children and all that stuff, he says these words first. It's the foundation for everything. He says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. It's not wives submit to your husbands. He gets there later. But he says submit to one another. He says it's mutual submission. Everyone gets to participate in this. We all get to submit to one another. And then he applies it. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't make your kids bitter. Why? Because here's the truth, and Paul knew this. Families get healthier as they fight together for the mission. And so as we decide that as a family, we're gonna fight together as, for the mission, what happens is we then will 
submit. We then will love. We then will obey. We then will not make our kids bitter. We'll begin to do all of those things. This principle is so, so powerful, and Paul understood this. And I think this principle comes back to one simple question, that if we would just ask this one simple question, I believe that mutual submission will take place in your homes. Here's the question, okay? The question's real simple. What can I do to help you? What can I do to help you? In fact, we're going to do something. We're going to practice this question. And I know many of you hate this. So on the count of three, we're going to say this question out loud. Many of you hate this. That's why we do it, because you hate it. That's the only reason, okay? But there's something about, if you can't do it here, where are you going to do it? Like, if, the, if you're going to actually live out this mutual submission, if you're actually going to live this out, if you can't do it in a room with a hundred other people, a couple hundred other people, if you can't do it here, I guarantee you're not going to do it in your house. I guarantee you're not going to do it among your family. So let's do this. On the count of three, we're going to ask this question. What can I do to help you? Ready? One, two, three. What can I do to help you? How easy was that? I'm glad you asked. I got all sorts of things. I'm kidding. (laughs) See, if everybody in your family would simply ask this question, imagine the temperature and the tension beginning to go down in your household. Let's just walk through this for a second. Middle schoolers and high schoolers. If you ask this question to your parents, hey, parents, what can I do to help you? There's two things that are going to take place. Number one, your parents are going to be so shocked that you learned something in church, they're going to be like, we got to go back. Second thing, my guess is that your parents are going to be so caught off guard that you thought about asking that question that they might not even have an answer for you, and you're probably going to be off the hook. Just saying. But you know what's even cooler about that? If you ask them this question, if you really want to impress them, uh, ask them in front of their friends. Try that. It'll work out for you, okay? (laughs) Parents. Parents. Depending upon the age and stage of your kids, I understand this can backfire real fast. But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to to ask your kids, hey, what can I do to help you? What can I do? Ladies, ladies, when you ask your your husband or you ask your boyfriend this question, what can I do to help you? You know what it says? It says, I'm aware of the burden that you carry. I'm aware of the responsibility that you carry. Can I leverage my time for you? Men, I know this question scares you to death. Because you got a fear that when you ask this question, the list is never going to end. <laughs> but some of your wives, they're afraid to ask for help, and the reason they're afraid to ask for help is because they felt resistance in the past. But if you're truly going to love your spouse the way that Paul calls you to love your spouse, if you're truly going to love your spouse the way that Jesus, and aren't we all trying to look more and more like Jesus? If you're going to love your spouse the way that Jesus says to love your spouse, by saying, hey, what can I do to help you? You're opening the door to love your spouse. And I'll be honest, there's some fears. There's the fear of, they're just gonna take advantage of me. Students, when I told you that, you're like, man, summer just started and all that's gonna happen is I'm gonna have a list of things to do now. Thanks, Ryan. Some of your parents are thinking, you know what, if I ask this question, I'm gonna have to get a new iPhone for my, for my kid. I'm gonna have to give him a later curfew. You don't have to do that stuff, okay? Nothing to do with taking advantage of. The second fear is this, no one's gonna live in authority. No one's gonna be in authority. They're just going to sit around and say, where do you want to eat? I don't care. Where do you want to eat? And we're all just going to starve. <laughs> Has nothing to do with authority. Here's why it's important. Second part of this verse. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, in light of what Christ has done for you, that is the measurement by which we use. It would be like if we had a conversation with God. Let's just say, I have a conversation with God where I say, hey God, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for what you've done in my life. I'm so grateful that you wiped away and washed away all of my sin. I'm so grateful that you've changed my life. I'm so grateful that you changed my relationships. How can I show you how grateful I am, God? And God says, I want you to take all that gratitude and apply that to your family. 
But God, this is between me and you. This isn't between me and my family. This is between me and you. What can I do for you? And God says, I want you to take all that debt that you owe me. You know that sin that you've been carrying around? You know that addiction? You know all those things I've broken? You know how I put your family back together? You know how I did all that stuff? I want you to take all of that debt that you owe me, and I want you to apply it to your wife. Just love her. God, can I just give you 11%? Can I just go on a mission trip, right? He says, no, 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 no. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here's your homework. Get it? Ask this question. What can I do to help? And if you do this, just listen and watch and see the temperature and the tension in your home will begin to change. And I bet the way that you view your family will begin to change. And some of you, you're in difficult situations. Some of you, you're hanging on by a thread in your marriage. What if you ask this question? Some of you are living in some, some weird custody battle stuff and you're saying, what if I ask this question? Some of you are living in blended families. Some of you don't see eye to eye with your parents. What if you asked this question? And some of you are going to have to practice in the mirror. And some of you, you might even have to change the verbiage because it just sounds so weird. But here's what I know. When you want to ask it least, you probably need to ask it most. Because families get healthier as they fight together for the mission. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity we have to realize and recognize that our identity is in you. And that, God, we do have a mission on this earth, and that's to glorify you because of who you are and what you've done in and through and for us. And so, God, today, it's my prayer that the individuals in this room and even myself would draw closer and closer to you because of who you are. God, we love you, and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen.